Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. I guess I always have this habit when I get up here. I just I, I, I feel like um, we could have went on with the Sunday school a bit longer. I appreciated those thoughts you had, Warren, and everyone else that shared as well. I, I couldn't get my mind off of the way our our thoughts were running, and not that I disagree with it, but we emphasize in Sunday school how God deals differently in the New Testament, at least in a measure, with how he meets out judgment on sin and what he did there in that particular situation and under the Old Covenant. And there's a lot of truth to that. However, if, if you will, just turn with me to Hebrews 10. I've been reading through Hebrews here the last while. And this is not going to be my message. This is kind of just a little, um, a little thought. But I think it's important. So we're going to read Hebrews 10. We're going to start at verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. And we saw that this morning in today's lesson. Now, look, get verse 29. Here the Hebrew writer says, Of how much sorer punishment? It's going to be worse than that punishment under Moses. Suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing? And hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. That tells me that if Achan had a sore punishment for his willful sin, how much sorer our punishment for our willful sinning? Just an, another question for you. Did you catch which tribe Achan was from? Did you catch that? Which tribe was he from? Judah. Which tribe was Christ from? Judah. Judah brought us great blessing. Through the family of Judah, we have this, this blood that's talked about here in, in Hebrews that we can escape that sore punishment. Praise the Lord for that. All right. Turn with me to John 9. Last time we, we started looking here at um, John 9, and we, uh, we talked about this blind man and all the ramifications, all the groups of people that we can learn lessons from because of this man's blindness. And we last time we looked at the disciples and Jesus and how they related to this man. And we looked at the miracle and how that was performed and the lessons we can learn from that. And this leaves us with um, four more what I'm going to call people or sets of people that I'd like to pull lessons from. And when I got working on this, um, I realized that I think it's going to take another time. So um, um, I either could really try to bail the hay tight and push it through, or I could just take my time and make it into two. And I thought maybe the latter would be better than the former. So we're going to, um, we're going to start reading at verse Eight, just to uh, refresh our minds here a little. And we will read through, 
Um, well, probably 25:26. The neighbors, therefore, and they which, which before had seen him that was born blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore they said unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. They said unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. They brought to, they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keeps not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? There was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. They asked him, saying, Is your son who you say, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, Ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. The Jews had agreed already that if any man did not confess he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, he is of age, ask him. I'm going to stop reading there. Basically, I want to look at the, um, the neighbors and the parents and then I want to look at the, uh, the man himself a bit this morning. And we're going to save our friends, the Pharisees, for the next time. So let's look a bit at this man's neighbors. Very likely, as I pointed out the last time, not very likely, I think it was a fact, that in that particular part of the world at that particular time, seeing a blind man on the street was not at all an uncommon sight. That was a relatively common thing. And when something is common especially a blind man with a uh, pan that he's handling, sometimes things like that can become a nuisance or a bother. I have a feeling that a blind man on the street with a pan was probably something like a panhandler in a big city, perhaps a hitchhiker, somebody that's pretty easy to look that way and keep on going. I began to wonder if God had made any provision for blind people in the law when he gave Moses his law and the things that... Um, that he gave Moses there in, in the first five books of the Bible, I thought, did he make any provision for blind folks? And I found there's two places that he, spe he speaks specifically to blind people and how they were supposed to be treated. In Deuteronomy 27:18, it says, Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way. And in Leviticus 19:14, he says, Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but thou shalt fear thy God, I am the Lord. So there was two things. Um, if a blind man asked you for directions and you tricked him, that wasn't a joke. That was sin. You don't do that. 
And the other thing was, if you saw a blind man walking along and you stuck your foot or your cane out or you threw something in his way and he tripped, that wasn't a joke either. That was sin. So there was a bit of provision made specifically for these blind people. But other than that, there wasn't much, well, there wasn't anything that I could find that God had specifically said, here's how you're supposed to treat the blind people. So what kind of neighbors do you think this, this man had? Talked about his neighbors here that um, uh, got themselves in a dither after he was healed. I believe that no doubt um, this man had neighbors much like we do today. I believe he had a variety of neighbors. I believe this man had neighbors that were too busy to care too much. Um, I think there's a very good chance that he had a few neighbors like that. I believe he had neighbors that had very important things to do, or at least they thought that. I had to think of this whenever Mark was having the devotional. And that, that man that was busy harvesting his crops and building barns, he had things to do. Did you ever think about there might have been a few blind people he could have shared that wealth with? I bet there would have been. Some, I believe, were probably way too good for down and outers. Um, who wants a blind man? Who wants to be a friend of a blind man? Who wants to hang out with a blind person? I don't think these blind people were necessarily um, maybe the most um, well-groomed, perhaps. A little hard to look in the mirror and comb your hair, isn't it, if you're blind? It's a little, it's a little tough. You think of some of the things that would be a, a, a handicap, hard to do if you're blind. Down and outers. I think there was probably people that when they passed by that blind man, they thought, I'm glad he can't see. I can, if I tiptoe past this man, he won't know I'm there. I don't have to drop my shekel. I can keep going. I'm glad he can't see. That's a good thing. Do you think there was a percentage of people that had heartfelt compassion for this blind man? Do you think this man had anybody that stopped, chatted with him on a regular basis? said, how are you doing? How's life treating you today? I'm going to hold out hope that there was a few. I don't know that. This is all speculation. But I'm going to hold out hope that there was a few good people in this group of neighbors he had. And maybe more than a few. I don't know. Well, let's look at the response of these neighbors in verses 8 and 9. It certainly was one of surprise and confusion. Um, immediately we had this conversation. Um, some say, well, you know, I think that's the blind man that sat down the street with his, with his pan and wanted money. And others said, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's him. So we have this conversation back and forth. Is it or isn't it? That may reflect some on the attention that the people paid to the man. I'm guessing that the people that maybe stopped and said hello knew it was him. And the people that tiptoed past or went around the other way so they didn't have to sort of get avoid the man probably wondered. I think, too, it probably reflects some on their unbelief. How could this blind man possibly see? The man himself, as we'll see later, said, has anybody in the world ever heard of such a thing happening? This has never happened before. A blind man can see. How can this possibly be? I do, re do wonder if the man did have any neighbors such as Elizabeth had. If you remember the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, whenever uh, the announcement was made that these folks in their old age were going to have this son, um, and this started to happen. Elizabeth was carrying this baby, 
You remember what it says? It says that her neighbors and her relatives came and rejoiced with her. I hope this poor man had a few neighbors that came and just rejoiced with him. What a day. This, this man can, can see. I mean, what a, what a thing. We don't have record that that happened. And a person would have to wonder, did it not happen? Or was that the kind of neighbors this man had? To their credit, I'll give them this, at least they were interested in further investigation. It's interesting how that went, but they took the man and they said, come along with us, let's go see the Pharisees. So they took him to the Pharisees in verse 12 and 13. I don't know why they took him to the Pharisees, um, but I'm going to give these people the benefit of the doubt. And whenever I talk about the Pharisees the next time, I'll enlarge on that just a little bit, why I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. We have to understand that the Pharisees were indeed the spiritual leaders of the day. It, it, to me, I wonder if it wasn't something like the wise men going to Herod. Um, hey, where, where's Christ? Yeah, We've got to start somewhere. Let's start with the king. Let's see, see if we can figure this thing out. I wonder if they didn't think, well, you know, the leaders... These Pharisees, these spiritual um, sages of the law, should maybe know this took place. Let's take him along with the Pharisees and, uh, and let's discuss it. Perhaps some of them liked a little agitation. Maybe they knew that this would raise the ire of the Pharisees. And um, they had a hankering for that. Unfortunately, there are those kinds of people too. That could have been part of it. I'm guessing that the majority, from what we have here in the, in the Bible account, I'm guessing the majority of the people took him to the Pharisees because they knew that there had been a Sabbath infringement. At least in their minds, there had been a infringement on the Sabbath. You know, tradition can become very entrenched in the fabric of society. And I believe that the tradition of what was and what was not acceptable on the Sabbath day was deeply embedded in these people's moral bedrock. And they said, we can't have this. Let's go to the Pharisees. So let's stop for a minute. Let's consider these neighbors and what lessons we can learn from them. I guess the first question I had is, what kind of a neighbor am I? Am I, where do I fit in? If, if somebody would go to my neighbors and say, what kind of a neighbor is Dwight Burkholder? What would they say? I, I, I couldn't help but think of, of the account that uh, Luke gives in Luke 10 about the, um, the man that came to Jesus. And he said, good master, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And so they have this conversation. And it, it, it comes up that the two important things were loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And if you remember, the lawyer squirmed. He, he began to squirm a little bit. I think he was thinking, okay, let's define neighbor. Is it the guy next door, two doors away? I'm thinking about this guy a mile away that I'm having a little problem with. Is he my neighbor? Do I have to work with that guy too? Jesus goes on to define that neighbors go way, way, way beyond who's next door, doesn't he? He really does. I believe in this particular account, I believe that probably was more this man's neighborhood, the people that live next door. But 
Neighbors go much further than that. I'm happy to say that um, for myself, I had very good mentors when it comes to neighborly relationships with people in our neighborhood growing up. My mother and father, for whatever reason, I guess their personalities or whatever, I'm not sure, but they did a very good job at reaching out to our neighbors, as I remember that. Uh, one, one neighbor in particular, neighbors that we had, they were a Polish couple that their parents, as I remember, had emigrated from Poland. And uh, they were a unique couple. They were originally from New York. They, they, the parents went, moved to New York, and then in the go-go days of the 60s and 70s, Mack Truck had put a, um, an assembly plant out there in Hagerstown, and so there was an influx of, of people from the East Coast that moved on out to the frontier of western Pennsylvania or, or midwestern Pennsylvania and worked at Mack Truck, and that's, that's what brought this, these folks to the neighborhood. He was employed at Mack Truck. Very unique couple. Um, if you can imagine a Polish person with a New York accent, that's what it was. And this lady loved to talk. Um, I don't want to pick on Ryan because he's not here this morning, but it, made, it would make Ryan look like a quiet man, okay? That's how this man liked to talk, or this person liked to talk. So she would come over to my parents' place, I, I'd say probably on average at least once a week, stand on my mom's rug inside the door and just do that, just talk. And you really didn't have to say a whole lot, you just had to listen. And another unique thing that between these two, probably not unique, but it was very well known in the neighborhood that Ed and Lil did not get along. And there was a breezeway, an open breezeway between their house and garage, and they duped it out in that breezeway. And you could hear it. We didn't live real close, but you could hear it. You hear this yip, 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 and you knew what was happening. Ed, Ed was getting taken to the cleaners one more time. Anyway, Ed, Ed retired from Mack Truck. And if you can imagine, that's all you know is how to work on a semi line on a Mack Truck, and suddenly you're stuck in a house with a woman that doesn't like you just real well. It's going to drive you nuts, and that's exactly what happened to Ed. He went nuts. He literally went nuts, and he ended up at the uh, Brook Lane Mental Institution about a year or two after his retirement. Literally bonkers. And Lil did not have license. And as I remember this, that one whole summer, I believe it was probably once a week, my mom or my parents, whichever, whatever worked out, would take Lil to see Ed at the uh, at Brook Lane Mental Institution. One night a week, they would do that. You know, um, I just mentioned that because as I look back on that, it didn't occur to me whenever I was a youngster, the, the, the second mile. I mean, you know, I think of myself today and I'm like, would I do that? Would I do that for my neighbor? I hope I would. But my mom and dad did, and I'm, and I'm glad for that example. And uh, I, I could mention other things too, and I won't, but they were very involved in their neighbor's lives. Sometimes I think we care about separation from the world, and that's important, folks. That's very important. But remember this. Sometimes we can become so separated that we don't have the impact that we should. That can be a problem. Remember, salt's good, but salt's got to touch the meat before it's going to be effective. Okay? I believe some of these neighbors, and maybe sometimes our problem can be too, is the self-righteous excuse that, look, 
I didn't trip this man. I didn't give him wrong direction, so I'm good to go. I'm off the hook. You think God is happy with those excuses? I don't give my neighbor grief. I stay out of his way. I don't bother him. I don't cheat him. I don't do anything wrong. I'm good. Is that okay? Just consider that. Consider Luke 14, 12, and 13. This is Jesus talking about how to serve suppers and dinners. Then said he also to them that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brother, nor thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made to thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. I ask you again, is it, is it good enough just to refrain from doing the bad things? Or are we required to go further than that? I would say from Luke 14, the answer is somewhat clear. In the story of the Good Samaritan, going back to that, Jesus pretty well spelled out what a good neighbor is, didn't he? Um, don't you think it would have been enough for that Samaritan to at least contact the man's family members and say, Hey, I took him to the, to the inn over here. Can you guys pick up the tab after that? That would have been a good neighbor, wouldn't it have been? been a whole lot better than a priest than a Levite. But the, the, when, you, when you stop and consider the second mile that man made, was, it's, it's unbelievable. Well, folks, we, uh, we live in a world of needs. You know that. We have people that are hurting. And it's easy to forget these people. And sometimes it's easy to get like the priest and Levite and think we're a cut above. Ignore people. Let's not do that. Romans 12, 15, and 16 says, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be, not, be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Blind men, don't be wise in your own conceits. This reaches out to our brotherhood as well. Do you ever think about, and I just want to touch this out of those verses, Rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep. Do you ever think about why Jesus instructed, or Paul instructed us to do that? You think about it. So somebody, something good happens to a person. It's easy to get jealous and not rejoice with him. Or something bad happens to a person. It's easy to say, hey, you know, get over it. You know, let's don't don't think about it. You know, tr- no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if something good happens, rejoice. If something not so good happen, weep with that person. That makes good neighbors. All right, let's move on to this man's parents. That's the next um, folks that come into play here. I find these, these parents quite interesting. And I find that there's three areas that um, it seems like they could have used some help. For whatever reason, it seems like they were strangely unconcerned about their children's or this child's well-being. It seems like they were unswervingly committed to status quo and the religiosity of the day that was accepted. And it seemed like they had no interest in exploring truth because they were fearful of where that could lead them and what that could take them to. So let's explore that a little bit. Why the lack of concern, seemingly, of the well-being of the child? It seems to me, if I had a blind child and he received his sight, I would be the first one on the street, and I could not wait to tell everybody. That seems to me like that would be the case. I know that would be the case with me. Put it that way. 
But these folks, not so much. And I pondered this, and I wonder if the reason for that doesn't go back to verse 2. Go back to verse 2, and let's read that verse again. And his disciples asked him, Jesus, saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Folks, I believe these folks here, these parents, probably had a lifelong stigma ever since this man was born. There's something I did. There's something I did. I believe the neighbors scrutinized those people and said, Oh, yeah, you remember how that man was when he was young? Remember that? Or do you remember that particular sin that man did? Or, yes, I remember. He, he, um, he uh, had a bad business deal with me 20 years ago. That's why. That's why this man, that's why this son is born blind. And I believe that that neighborhood walked around with a chip on the shoulder at these parents. I believe that's very possible. The disciples certainly saw it as a distinct possibility. I believe these parents probably resented, or there's a possibility anyway, that they resented this child because of so much misunderstanding that this particular child brought on them. Now imagine this. If you are a parent of a special needs child, can you imagine? It's one thing to have a special needs child. It's another thing to have the entire society you live in say, it's your problem. It's your fault. No help. No encouragement. It's just grudging, you know, suspicion. It's hard to imagine living with that. Another thing that I wondered about, do you suppose it's possible that these parents had heard of Jesus and never took their blind son to Jesus for healing? That's another speculation, but I think that is, that is a distinct possibility. If that is the case, I think that's very sad. How about their satisfaction with the status quo religiosity of the day? How did that come to be? Well, I think their stigma in life that we had talked about already probably caused these folks not to want to do anything that would further sideline them or make them look like an outcast of society. In verse 16, if we go back and read that, the Pharisees had already labeled Jesus as a sinner. And we can go back into scriptures before this where the same thing is brought out. This man's a sinner. The people that identify with him are sinners. And it's hard for us, we, when we think Pharisee, we don't think good things. And it's hard for us to understand that to some people, the Pharisees were good people. And if the good people of your day are pointing out the sinners, you think you want to identify with those people or that person? I really, really believe that that's probably an underlying factor. And you know what, folks? I think they saw this as a way to redeem themselves. Hey, I'm on the side of the Pharisees now. I'm on the side of public opinion. If I, if I you know, um, just, just keep this Jesus man at a distance, suddenly I'm a friend of somebody I've been trying to get respect from all my life. Suddenly, I'm going to have some respect from these, from these people. It's very childish, but you know, it's childish what we struggle with sometimes. Um, I, I'm going to give this brief illustration because it illustrates it so well. But when I was a, a little grade schooler, there was, a, there was a, a, a boy in our grade that everybody wanted his approval. Everybody did. I even did. Okay? So you did things to get this man's approval because that felt good. And I'll never forget 
This man, by the way, his, his dad drove John Deere tractors, so that was the standard. One day, another one of my friends come to school, and he could not wait to tell this boy that his father had bought a John Deere chopper. It was suddenly going to get some approval from this boy that we all wanted approval from. And I'll never forget this. The guy looked at him and said, John Deere chopper? He said, you need a gale, not a John Deere. And the, and the, and the boy's eyes just visibly just drooped. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. I want it so bad for this man's approval. My dad buys a John Deere chopper, and that's not right. It's supposed to be Gale. Why did he do that? You know, you could almost see it. He wanted that approval so bad. And I think sometimes that follows us into adulthood. So what are the lessons? Well, how concerned are you and I with our children's well-being, spiritually and physically? I think, I think we are, but it can be taxing. It can be very taxing sometimes. And it's, and it's good to understand that our children aren't perfect. Our children aren't angels. And our children probably will embarrass us sometimes. And that keeps us humble. I think it does. And sometimes, and you know this, we are sorely disappointed with choices that our children make. Or perhaps they abandon the faith that we hold dear. And this can sometimes lead us to feel like we're inadequate or that we have, we have failed. When, you know, when this happens, as I was thinking of this and making an application, you know, when, this, when things like this happen, it's good for introspection, but self-loathing, no. We don't need to loathe ourselves. We have to remember that this child is still a child. He still needs salvation, and God can still save him. This child still has a soul, and we have an obligation to continue to point him to God. And I would like to just say this. Um, when things like this happen, there's always spectators and Monday morning, you know, people that have the answers, um, think they do. I think it's good for us to be careful, very, very careful how we judge things like that. I like the, um, I like the uh, admonition that Jude gives us in Jude 22 and 23, and we won't read that, but read it sometime. Jude there says, there are different ways to reach people that are outside of God's will. Some have mercy, some save by pulling them out of the fire. I don't know what all that means, but it, it, to me it, it clearly speaks that there are different methods of rescue operations. And so those of us on the sidelines, let's not view folks that are disappointed or have a, have a, um, a child that somewhat has disappointed them with some sort of suspicion or sideline them. Rather, let's take to heart Hebrews 12.12 12 that says, lift up the hands that hang down and the feeble knees. I think that's, that needs to be where we find ourselves. And above all, folks, let's be faithful in leading our children to Christ. Let's move on. These people were content with status quo, religion. You along with I know that there's way too many people in the world today that are very satisfied with religion. They like religion. They want religion. But please don't talk about transformation. That we're not so interested in. In other words, we want the nook, but not the bottle. Give me the nook, but not the bottle. Eric Schrock, 
a couple years ago at the men's seminar, read a little piece that I so much liked, and I went online and I found it. I'm going to read it again because I think it wraps up what I'm talking about so well. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Another quote I found, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's not what these parents were interested in. A few years ago, I um, was talking with a man from a, um, a rather large Mennonite community. He was telling me how his daughter had, um, had gone to, um, on the mission field. She had gone to another country, and she was in this mission program. And uh, he went on to tell me that he had instructed his daughter before she left on this particular mission that he expects when she comes back, that she's still going to fit into society she came from. In other words, his instructions were, when you come back, make sure that the religion that fit in the paper sack when you left still fits when you get back. Don't let God do anything too radical with you. I still want you to fit into the community when you come back. Well, I don't want to take that too far, but folks, you can. And I think... My take on it when I was listening to him was, I don't want my, my daughter to be too radical for God. That's not going to work. That's not going to please me. What message did that send his daughter? And we don't have time for this, but an interesting study, if you ever have time to study it, is study the halfway Anabaptists of the 16th century. Those people wanted their... Um, religion to fit in a paper sack as well. They wanted it so bad, what the Anabaptists had, but they were not willing to go the whole way. Three dollars worth of God was what they wanted. Let's leave that. These people, as we already mentioned, were paralyzed by fear, these parents, and there was good reason. John 7, 13, how be it? No man spoke openly of Jesus for fear of the Jews. John 12:42 Nevertheless among the chief rulers now catch that among the chief rulers also many believed on him but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue these parents were in very good company the chief rulers believed but they would not confess because they were scared of the Pharisees and they still wanted to go to the synagogue I want you to think about this a little bit, and um, I don't want to make a big issue out of this because we all know what we mean when we use these words, but how many times have you used or I used the word, this person is a believer? We know what we mean, and I don't want to be too obnoxious about this, but you know what it says here? The chief rulers were believers too. It says they were believers, but they weren't confessors. Folks, there's a difference between believers and confessors. The devils are believers. They believe. 
And they tremble, it says. But they wouldn't confess. These folks had a fear of man that kept them from the joy of the Lord. Well, what's Jesus have to say? Jesus has something else to say in Matthew 10.33. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. What do you suppose would have happened if the parents would have got rid of their spirit of fear and instead replaced it with the spirit of power, the spirit of love, and the spirit of a sound mind? Do you think things, the story may have been just a little different? The remaining minutes, let's look at the blind man and um, his take on this whole thing. The first thing that's, that has to be said is in verse 8. This man had a change that was easily recognized. This man didn't need his cane anymore. He didn't need a seeing eye dog. He didn't need to feel his way around. There was a visible change. His neighbors knew it. His friends knew it. And what happened after the change was readily recognized? Look at verse 11. So he's called into account. And he says, a man that is called Jesus made clay anointed my eyes. And he told me to go wash. Look at verse 15. He's questioned again. And uh, he said unto them, he put clay on my eyes, and I wash, and I do see. Look at verse 25. He says, whether he's a sinner or no, I don't know. But I know one thing, I was blind. But now I see. This man's testimony was clear, simple, and easy to get a hold of. No questions. None. Am I as excited about my salvation as this man was about his sight? Pete did a wonderful job last Sunday uh, talking about this, about our excitement, about the salvation we have. You know, sometimes I think we think that we need a high-sounding theological exposition on salvation and sanctification and justification and all these other Asians, and we don't need that. If you never have... Pick up the book, Will the Theologians Please Sit Down and Read That? That's a good book. The theologians should sit down. They really should. And the other thing that's interesting, this simple story unsettled the Pharisees. Oh, they hated that story. They hated that thing. They could not deny it. They could not deny that this man saw. He didn't need his cane anymore. And they just hated it. That simple, clear testimony. I couldn't help think of this example too. The man that Jesus cured of the devil that wanted so bad to follow Jesus and his disciples and he begged Jesus. He said, can I follow you? And what did Jesus say? No, 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 don't, don't follow me. Go home and tell your neighbors what God has done for you. What do you suppose that man's story sounded like? He had no... I mean, this man was just cured of the devil. He's running around without his clothes on. He didn't have his right mind. And Jesus said, simply go home and tell the people what happened to you. That's it. It. If that was good enough for that man, it's good enough for you and me too. Go home and tell what God has done for you. If he's done something for you. Peter admonishes us to be always ready to give an answer. 
Let's look at another part of this man. This man was not afraid to call out the learned on their obvious unbelief. And he did that quite profoundly. In verse 27, when he's asked to retestify, he says, I told you already and you did not hear. Wherefore would you not hear it again? Would you also be his disciple? Oh, I just love that. Oh, he just digs them, just, oh, just puts it right to him. Well, he's rudely insulted by that response in verse 28 to 32. But he again tells him, folks, your reasoning makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense. I like how he was not intimidated by their insults. And um, we won't take the time, but if you read in Jeremiah 1, God tells Jeremiah the same thing. He said, when you give my message to those people, they're just going to rail on you. They're going to make faces at you. They're going to throw you in the dungeons. They're going to do all this nasty stuff. But he said, never mind, I've made you a bulwark. They cannot harm you, Jeremiah. And, and in Matthew 10, Jesus picks up on that same line. And he tells his disciples, he said, when you're called to testify before the synagogues and the kings and the rulers and all these things, he said, they're going to do all kinds of nasty, nasty stuff. He said, don't you bother. Don't you let that bother you. You just keep right on putting it where it needs to be put. And Stephen, in his sermon, in his one and only sermon that we have an account of, he did that very same thing. He goes, he whistles down through the entire history of the Jews, and at the very end, he just calls it out. He said, you stiff-necking, perverse people, and he just puts it out there. And that's what got him stoned. That's what got him stoned. Now, we, we go to great lengths, and we talk about right and wrong ways to witness and folks there is there is right and wrong ways and it's not always right to call people out in those direct terms but let's always remember this we have ample account of people in the bible that did call people out quite directly and it was okay there is a time and a place for everything well to end up here i love how this 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 man was a work in progress Let's look at how Jesus works with this man. In verse 11, he answered, and when he's given his testimony, he said, Jesus is a man. I know he's a man. I know his name's Jesus. That's, that's what I know. When we go to verse 17, he goes, he's a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. In verse 33, when he's called to testify again, he says, this man has to be from God. Because if he wasn't from God... He could do nothing. And in verse 38, when he encounters the Lord, he says, You're Lord, and I believe. He embraced the truth one step at a time and at the pace that he could get it. And you know, folks, it's no different with you and me today. Jesus will lead you at the pace that you can get it. But the caveat is you have to keep up. You have to keep up. And if you will, he will not outpace you, but you can't lag behind. Don't do that. Don't try that. We sometimes get the idea that there is certain ways that Jesus must work. And I want to be careful what I say, but just to, just to build on that, be very careful how you judge people. God can work with a man any way he jolly well chooses. He can do that. He can work with you any way he chooses. Let's just make sure that we're working with God so he can work with us. And we will have the blessings that this man enjoyed. 
absolute abundant blessing.